I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Minimum wage rise of four euro per hour by 2025 sought by the unions. Do you think it's necessary given the rise in the cost of living? Minister for Justice Simon Harris addresses ministerial kite flying surrounding the budget and the far-right concerns that he has. I never use such strong language about any individual person, but I do use it about certain acts that I've witnessed. Uh, The burning of a tent, for example, which was somebody's temporary shelter, and the attempt to block people uh, from entering or exiting what will be their temporary home as they flee persecution. The hijacking of the Irish flag, Uh, by people in balaclavas. Those are the sort of things that I refer to as as abhorrent. And later, look at Virgin Media Television's new documentary, The Monk, A Free Man. We were at the front entrance as that tactical team, as they were called, were making their way in. They were shouting at us, get the F out of here, get the F down, and quite aggressively shouting at the people running out, and you know, there was kids among that crowd. As always, you can join our conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. Minimum wage should rise by €4 Euro per hour to €15.30 Euro per hour over the next two years to help the country's most poorly paid workers cope with rising prices, so says the Irish Congress of Trade Unions. Well, for more on this, I'm joined by Labour Party Senator Marie Sherlock, Dublin reporter with PA, Gronyne A, News Talk reporter Henry McKean and Managing Director of the HR Suite, Caroline Reedy. Um, You're all very welcome along uh, to the programme tonight. Um, The Irish Congress of Trade Unions have come out fighting on this one. No surprise, really, uh, Marie, calling for the national minimum wage to be increased um, by, in January 2024, so less than a year from now, by €2 to bring it to €13.30, and then a further €2 by the following year, I take it the Labour Party would say yes to this. Well, absolutely. And I think, Claire, the the key issue here is that workers are less able to pay for their bills this year compared with last year. So while many workers are getting pay increases, the cost of living is obviously far exceeding that. And for the lowest income workers, they're least able to withstand those shocking increases in their electricity, in their gas and their food prices. We have seen a decision by the government last year to increase the minimum wage below the rate of inflation. And therefore, there's an element of just ensuring that minimum wage workers, you know, why do we have a minimum wage to start with? Is to ensure that there is a floor of decency with regards to pay in this country. And when we look at what minimum wage workers are paid at the moment, we don't have a decent floor. And we need to ensure that that those 162,000 workers Mm -hmm. on the minimum wage and the thousands more who are just above that 
um, actually are paid a wage that can ensure that they have a decent and sustainable uh, standard of living. The argument has always been from government that those on the minimum wage uh, pay very little or nothing in the way of tax. And that, you know, we compare favourably to other, you know, European countries and elsewhere when it comes to the tax that low paid workers would pay in the first place, if you if you raise the minimum wage to such a point that they fall into a tax bracket, then that does not benefit them. What would you say to that? Well, over the last number of years, to be fair, like is it when there's been an increase in the minimum wage, the tax arrangements have changed accordingly. I think like the, 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 the argument here is not about how much tax is being paid, but ultimately how much is in somebody's back pocket to ensure that they can pay for their wages. And the reality is that the, the, the standard of living, that we've seen real wage reductions for all workers, for most workers across the Irish economy, of about three and a half, four percent last year. And that's going to sustain into this year with inflation running at over 7%. So there's a key issue here. We've got uh, corporation or corporate profits at an all-time high, rose by 30% last year. And yet wages, and particularly those in the low-wage sectors, have never been as much of, of a disadvantage. So we, we need to remedy that. And, there, and there's, there's, there, there's a responsibility on the part of government to ensure that those lowest-wage workers, um, that their situation is improved. The government has already talked about moving to a living wage over the next uh, three years. And so what the Irish Congress of Trade Unions is rightly calling for is simply putting the government on that path to a living wage. Now, well, they, well, you know, they, there's big question yeah. marks about whether the government is credibly well, going to do that, but we very much they, believe that we need okay. to move to a living wage. Okay. Um, yes, because the living wage is something that the government have been touting, and in their defence they will say, we are looking at this, we do recognise that the minimum wage as it is right now, Gronje, does not go far enough to help people pay for just, you know, living, living their lives really, that's why they're going to call it the living wage now. Uh, what the Irish Congress of Trade Unions are looking for is that little bit more to bring it up to, say, over 15 euro rather than the government's idea of a living wage, which is just over 13 euro. And also to do it faster than they plan to as well. And part of the reason why it's so much slower from government is they want to give businesses, particularly smaller businesses, the time to adapt to a, such a, a significant change to what is the minimum wage. Um, what's interesting about this debate is that a couple of months ago, we heard the government saying we had to be careful about pay increases amid inflation because it would go down. It was at a peak rate just before or around the Christmas period and it has been reducing, the rate of increase has been reducing since. But what we're hearing now is that it won't go back to the way it was before the, the war in Ukraine and that inflationary cycle began. So in that context, the I, ICTU is saying like, we, we need to accept that this is here to stay to some degree and that workers need to be protected um, on that basis. But the, uh, what the government has to decide, maybe if they are to listen to this proposal or not, is is the speeding up um, the way they want to spend money? Is there capacity there among small, small business in particular? But what it might do for them is solve the uh, worker shortage that they have in areas such as the construction sector. Yeah, do you think that's a factor, Henry, with it, that right now yeah. in those, you know, lower paid sectors, say the hospitality sector, yeah. certain parts of the service industry, that people don't feel that they're just getting 
paid enough yeah, to mean, do that job. Eleven euro thirty. I mean, that's so little. You can't even get a fast food meal for that. I know, obviously, you could go to the supermarket and you could go and look at you know cheap food and just about get by. And, and we're not even talking about much. They want an increase to thirteen thirty, and we know how expensive our uh, shopping baskets have got. I mean, eleven thirty. You know, how is anyone supposed to live on eleven thirty? This is a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. And just because they're minimum wage, why do we have to allow them to continue to suffer? And if you're if you're a teenager, you get even less. You get eighty percent of eleven thirty. And like we just have to pay them. What more. is the reasoning behind that? Because that's something think, that it, that has that has been in you're place. You're right. I think it's ju it's just here. Uh, I think this idea Spain, that when you kind of reach yeah. a certain age, you yeah. know, you can get pulled you, you get, back. Full I minimum think it's wage, because you're not that experienced. Then, problem. And this is why there's so many jobs, uh, you know, empty jobs. And sometimes you see a sign in a coffee shop saying, "Look, we will have a staff shortage. Bear with us." And there's so many jobs out there that need to be filled. And you know, we just pay people properly. And I know we're worried about inflation. And yes, it will add to inflation. But why should the poorest of the poor continue to have to suffer? And just because of greed? I mean, it's I, greed. Yeah, I Big am business greed. I, I am wondering though, those businesses that are really looking to recruit staff at the same time that the same businesses that say their overheads are crippling them, well, yeah, and restaurants, that, and, yeah, and that, I, I can't and that argue they're, that, they're, but... they're in a they're in a difficult space. That if they uh, yeah. have to pay staff mm. an extra four euro in two mm. years time a lot of those businesses will not well, be able no, to provide true. that. No, it's true, and you can't rely on tips. And But supermarkets, supermarkets have made an absolute killing mm. right through the pandemic, right through uh, the last few years with inflation and also uh, these large um, uh, delivery companies that you go online and buy stuff. I mean, they're, without naming them, you know who I'm talking about. Yeah, OK. Um, <laughs> Caroline, on this one, um, you know, is this uh, every employer's worst nightmare? to have the Irish Congress of Trade Unions saying, you know what, the minimum wage, that €11.30, Euro, um, just simply um, isn't enough. It needs to go up to €13.30 Euro 30 ASAP. I think every employer in the country over the last particularly two years have reviewed, benchmarked, have looked at their wages to do all of the things all the panel have said to retain the staff that they really need because you can't do business without having really good staff. So I think for a lot of businesses, Minimum wage is the entry level for, which is the, you know, it's the floor, it's when people come in to start. But in the majority of organisations, there's a path then from the minimum wage for progression. So what you're saying is employers are doing this already? There's definitely, there's certain, obviously, jobs when people start out, there's training rates, etc., which is the lower rates. But for the majority of employers now, they have to pay that bit more to be competitive. Mm. So you'll choose to work in that coffee shop or choose to work in the other business. But I suppose it's balanced. We've seen the introduction of the um, sick pay, statutory sick pay earlier this year. We know that there's lots of businesses under pressure with overheads and rates. People need to get paid a fair wage because if they don't in that employer, they're going to go somewhere else. And for the majority of organisations, they're trying to pay employees the best they can to attract the best staff. Marie, what would you say to that? We know it is a really competitive uh, mar uh, you know, labour market right now and that employers actually will have to pay more than the minimum wage in any case in order you know, to attract workers. Well, I think there's two things there. Firstly, we, we actually know from the data that actually over half of all minimum wage workers 
are in those roles for a year or more or on the minimum wage for a year or more. So this notion that somebody comes in and enters the, the, the workforce on the minimum wage and then progresses, that's not necessarily the case in certain sectors. There's a third of all minimum wage workers are on the minimum wage for four years or more. So I think that's why it's so important that we actually have these increases. I think the second thing is, every time we have this discussion about a minimum wage increase, it's like employers saying, oh God, we can't with, you know, endure another pay increase. And, and workers rightly saying, well, we, you know, we, we, we need to be paid more to try and pay our bills. And, and what's missing from the discussion is what's driving some of those other costs that employers are facing at the moment. So look at energy costs. And this comes back to the whole point about, about, about corporate profits, right? When you look at, let's say, energy, gas and electricity, mm. and they've been, gas has increased by 86% over the last, since, since the war broke out in Ukraine. Now, a small business, small coffee shop or small shop is, is facing the same gas increases or electricity increases as a normal residence, but we're not looking at the profits that those energy companies are making. Okay. And I think there's a real discussion to be had here about what's driving those other costs for those small businesses so that we don't have this dog-eat-dog conversation okay. time and again. So it shouldn't be employer versus employee on all of this, but something Maria said there, Caroline, is the fact that um, there are sectors where the minimum wage applies to workers for maybe up to four years, maybe more. They will be paid that minimum wage because maybe the employer thinks, well, you'll make it up in tips, you'll make, up, make it up in other ways, and they will not increase, increase the wage uh, for their workers. I think minimum wage and the new living wage, the whole reason that there is a committee in place to advise the government in relation to those recommendations is they're going to take the feedback from ICTU and all the uh, employee bodies in terms of feedback. They're going to look at the employer uh, feedback, but they're all going to look at the economist's uh, perspective because ultimately it needs to be a wage that all the parties can afford and it needs to be one that's fair and reasonable for both employees and employers. And I don't doubt but the Low Pay Commission, who will become the Living Wage, wage Commission, will do that. But I think for a lot of employers, they're ahead of the curve. We're starting to see huge efforts around benefits, which never before did we see, you know, things like pension, you know, health insurance, etc. Additional benefits on top of the wage, because again, that attraction and retention is so, so much of a priority for businesses. Uh, yeah, you'd wonder with the, the, the living wage that has been put out there um, by, um, by the coalition in this figure that they're looking at, given the cost of living crisis, given the inflation that we have seen, whether you know, submissions to the Low Pay Commission will make a difference here, um, growing up, whether they will be listened to and going, actually, you know what, you know that price we kind of set, maybe, maybe it is a bit too low, maybe it doesn't reflect um, the cost of living increases that those on the lowest pay are, are facing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it, it is 15 euro uh, an hour would be quite uh, a bar to reach, but it is that bit further in the future that they are proposing to do it. It's hard to imagine what rate of inflation or, or what way the economy would be at that stage. But of course, the Irish Congress of Trade Union will pitch that the highest amount they think that they can get. Um, but I think the question is, how do you improve? You know, we've seen during the cost of inflation crisis, how those on the lowest uh, wages are the ones that struggle the most. Mm -hmm. And that that is something the government has tried to target with one-off measures. But if you think about in the long term, you know, uh, that is kind of a, a story that come, kicks in again and again. And that's what the government is there for, is to provide people 
the help that they need to try and live life in, in an economy that is doing quite well. Yeah, interesting yeah. though, Henry, because what's the and, and you know we talked to the minister after Justice Simon Harris about this about this kind of coalition rift that's happening mm. over all this flag flying about a tax break yes. for middle-income workers. Yeah. Um, you know, on this one, I mean, is it something that middle-income earners out there are saying, yes, please, this would really help me? Or I'd prefer a bit more help when it came to, you know, health care, child care, you know, basic infrastructure, mm. cheaper public transport. Mm -hmm. You know, what do we do? Well, with, I with, think with, on with that, money? on this, this, you know, this tax cut of perhaps a thousand euro for the, the middle earner, absolutely we need it. Of course, families need it. I mean, we're talking about the minimum wage there and how, you know, there's, there's families going hungry. There's families watching at home right now. There might be a mum or dad that skipped dinner. It's terrible to think. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, if this, if this country is full of cash, mm. if there's money, just surpluses going around, why can't we have a tax cut? We are still... Um, paying massive taxes left over from the, uh, from the boom years, from the crash years. For, you know, th th they haven't gone away. We we're still paying massive taxes. Bring on this thousand euro um, rebate. Bring, bring it on. Bring, I it, know, on. bring yeah. it on, Marie. What does the Labour Party think of that? Well, I think, listen, of course, everybody would like to have more cash in their pocket. But the key issue... Should they have more cash in the pocket? Are those middle income earners, you know, just paying too much tax? Well, let me give you my experience, right? When I'm talking to people, when I'm on, on the doorsteps, there's people in really good incomes, right? And they're saying to me, they haven't a snowballed chance of trying to buy a house, right? There's people who are, you know, uh, like, you know, the, the picture of, of, of prosperity, they can't get a childcare place. And it's not because they can't afford it. They're simply the childcare places are not available. During the week, my Labour colleagues uh, had, had a motion in the doll with regards to the shocking delays mm. with regards to disability assessments, autism assessments. You cannot yeah, get them. I mean, and, and sometimes it's not even about how much, like even if you had the, the extra thousand euros in your back mm. pocket, you can't actually get the service. So we have Can to have you a conversation. Do both? Can you do both? Can well, you give that tax break to middle income earners? And we have heard, we've heard from the likes um, of, of Bernardo's and elsewhere that like two, um, you know, you have families with two or two full-time earners there mm -hmm. and they're still struggling to put food on the table. So is it possible to give that tax break for those hard-pressed um, uh, uh, workers while at the same time improving those key services you're talking the, the, about, the, like the, childcare, which is there, there's no doubt, astonishingly high cost There's, in this there's no doubt we need to look at, at, the, at the tax system, right, OK, and in particular in the middle. But, but I would have to say the value of giving away €1 billion Euros in, in tax cuts versus the benefit to, to individuals and to families in terms of the childcare, in terms of our health system, in terms of our education system, in ter uh, by, by spending that money in a much more targeted uh, form. And I think that, like I said, this is, this is what I'm hearing back from families. They want services. Uh, families want services. Uh, Caroline, benefits versus tax breaks, like, which do you think people appreciate more? I think it's the money in their back pocket and they decide how to spend it. Without doubt, childcare is always comes up time and time again for people as one of the biggest issues. But I think people want the money and then they want to decide how they're going to spend it. Because let's be honest, you're paid the same minimum wage or the same salary whether you, if for many jobs if you work in Dublin or you work in Kerry. And obviously the cost of living in both are going to be very different. So I think people want the control over how they spend the money. And that's a key factor. Well, the row goes on within the coalition and outside it as well, it seems. Um, we're going to leave that there for now. My thanks to Caroline Reedy. The rest of my panel will be staying on with me. Coming up after the break, 
Justice Minister Simon Harris on the far right and that coalition row over potential tax cuts in Budget 2024. Do stay tuned. I think some of the scenes that we saw in a Dublin location um, in recent days with, and I've commented on this publicly, with what I call the hijacking of the Irish flag. So what I'm talking about are people with um, balaclavas, people with their face covered, people brandishing the Irish tricolour, people pushing back at cars, telling them to go down the driveway. That's not protest. I mean, they're not Gardaí. They have no democratic mandate. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back. Budget kite-flying season has kicked off earlier than expected this year, with the Polish and Michal Martin criticising Fine Gael junior ministers for their suggestion calling for a €1,000 income tax break at the next election. However, the Minister for Justice, Simon Harris, has defended his party on the matter. Earlier today, I spoke to Minister Harris. I began by asking him about this coalition row. It's a clear articulation of Fine Gael policy and in a way I'm a little taken aback that it's actually generated maybe as much news or discussion as it has because it's certainly not news to me and it's not news for people who vote for me and vote Fine Gael that our party is in favour of reducing tax on work and putting more money back in people's pockets. Now, absolutely there's a way to go to the budget, budget isn't until October and no doubt there'll be lots of different ideas and suggestions put out there, I'm sure by members of all parties. Indeed, I heard Fianna Fáil, John McGuinness today say that it was entirely appropriate that Fine Gael ministers could articulate this view and at the end of the day the three government parties will come together just like we did last year and the year before and put a decent budget package in place to try and help people and tax cuts will be a part of that. Would they be ne- not be better off voicing their views with the Minister for Finance, Michael McGrath? And of course they do that as, as well and my colleague Jennifer Cara McNeil is obviously a minister in the Department of Finance. But look, I do think it's perfectly appropriate uh, for politicians of all political hues to give their views. Uh, cost of living is one of the biggest challenges families are facing. We're hearing it uh, on a daily basis and it's, you know, it's, it's not, you, you can't be silent on these issues either. It's perfectly okay to articulate what's long-standing Fine Gael policy and I should just say the programme for government also commits uh, to tax packages being a part of each budget. I'm asking you this, Minister, because the Thornish the Michal Martin said the remarks weren't helpful, accusing the junior ministers of undermining the budgetary process here. So while you think it's entirely appropriate, it's not something that's thought of as being entirely appropriate right across the board. Look, I have huge respect for, for, for the Thonished and I think there are comments that he, he maybe made at a, at a private Fianna Fáil parliamentary party meeting. He can account for his own comments. What, what, I, what I can certainly say is that 
I can cite lots of different examples of different politicians and different government parties coming forward with ideas, floating ideas, putting forward uh, views in a very public fashion. And, that, and I think that's actually fine and acceptable. Once the government ultimately comes together in delivering a package, just like we did last year, where we delivered a very significant cost of living budget, we will do the same again this year. So you disagree with Micheál Martin on that? I'm not looking to be disagreeable, I'm just saying that I, I'm, I am of the view that it is perfectly appropriate for the Fine Gael party to articulate what is clear Fine Gael policy in relation to tax. And by the way, if Fianna Fáil, the Greens, indeed any political party wants to do that, I would have the same view. Is it not the case though that it's Fine Gael putting themselves out there with that statement saying, you know, if there are tax breaks, it's us, we're behind them and no. not another party? So the, the, government, the government as a collective owns all the successes and all the challenges that we face. But, you know, political party expresses political views, I don't think, as a matter of holding the front page. So you don't believe it's a breach of trust then with your coalition partners in that regard? No, I don't. And my, my active view from engaging on a very regular basis in government is that all three parties are working very well together. And I think all three parties have the right to be political parties whilst in coalition. And of course, we ultimately have to come together round the cabinet table, sign off on the budget and sign off on the exact detail. What my colleagues were doing was putting forward ideas as to how they believe, um, how they believe tax uh, cuts could actually help working families. Um, I want to talk to you now in your brief around the, the handling of protests around migrant accommodation. And there has been criticism um, about the manner in which Gardaí plan on approaching these protests. And I note that you use words like abhorrent and despicable um, when you talk about the protesters and people who, who gather, you know, blocking asylum seekers moving to and from certain accommodation. But the criticism is that those words are not being met with action by the authorities. Can I just slightly clarify, because I never use such strong language about any individual person, but I do use it about certain acts that I've witnessed. Uh, the burning of a tent, for example, which was somebody's temporary shelter, and um, the attempt to block people uh, from entering or exiting what will be their temporary home as they flee persecution, the hijacking of the Irish flag uh, by people in balaclavas. Those are the sort of things that I referred to as, as abhorrent. I, I also just want to say this. I mean, there's been more than my numbers are probably out of date now, there's been probably at least more than 130 anti-immigration protests in Dublin alone so far this year. The guards have found themselves in very challenging environments, very tense environments at times. They've had to work to de-escalate situations. Their primary objective has to be to keep people safe, uh, to uphold the law, to stop any criminal behaviour, and where necessary because people have a right to protest to manage traffic and the likes. I think by and large they've done that exceptionally well. There have been a small number of occasions there where scenes have emerged that have caused public concern and they've concerned me as well. I'm very concerned when I see a small number of people um, effectively portraying themselves as the decision maker as to who can and cannot access a building uh, with no democratic mandate. But I also know from talking to the Garda Commissioner again as recently as today that sometimes the snippets that we, we see, you see, I see on social media, whatever, doesn't portray the entire picture of what the Garda are doing, the intelligence that the Garda are following, or the operations that the Garda plan to make sure people can access those buildings. And I'm very confident that the Garda will make sure people can always access uh, a building that has been allocated for accommodation. And I think we'll see that play out very shortly. I know that, Minister, but the example has been given of Debenham workers who in 2021 mounted a sit-down protest as part of their fight for proper redundancy and how they were you know, clamped down upon. You had the public or order unit, you had 50 Garthi coming in and removing them from their city centre protest point. And yet you have a blockade in County Clare, wh which went on for six days and that action was not taken. Is that fair? 
Well, I don't want to over-comment on any individual um, action by, by Gardaí because they're having to use their judgment and they're having to use their discretion. But what I do want to say is this, the idea of blockading cannot become seen in any way, shape or form as a new form of acceptable protest. It isn't. Um, you do have a right to protest in this country, but you don't have a right to continue to obstruct, continue to impede, intimidate or endanger. Uh, and I do think there's been a very fine line and I do think on some occasions that line has been crossed. And I when has the line been crossed? Well, I think, and again, I'm, I, I'll give you one example. I think some of the scenes that we saw in a Dublin location um, in recent days with, and I've commented on this publicly, with what I call the hijacking of the Irish flag. So what I'm talking about are people with um, balaclavas, people with their face covered, people brandishing the Irish tricolour, people pushing back at cars, telling them to go down the driveway. That's not protest. I mean, they're not Gardaí. They have no democratic mandate. I have discussed this with the Garda Commissioner. I am very satisfied though as Justice Minister, and I want the people to know this, that the Garda do have plans in place in relation to this, well, and that the Garda are that monitoring it. What happened in that? You were concerned at this happening. Were arrests made? In relation to that specific situation, I'm not aware that there have been arrests made yet. There have been a number of arrests made, 11 I believe so far in Dublin alone in relation to anti-immigration protests, a number of people already charged. But what has happened over the weekend, if I can speak to it in this way, is that very, very many people have been successfully accommodated. People, we had a very serious situation with people being unaccommodated, significant concern from lots of people, including myself, about people in tents. We have seen a very significant reduction in those numbers in recent days. And that is down to, of course, Minister O'Gorman and others finding extra accommodation, but it's also down to the excellent work that has been done, often behind the scenes by the Gardaí. And what I just want to assure the public is, sometimes we don't get to talk about this out loud, sometimes we don't get to visualise this, but the Gardaí are, as we speak, actively helping make sure people can access that accommodation and making sure laws are upheld. And I'm confident that we'll see more of that in the coming days. But do you worry about that level of protest happening, that protest that can spill over into violence at times, and that you know, there isn't the strong clampdown, there isn't the strong message being sent out, that this is, this is not okay? Well, what I, what I, worry, what I worry about is, is the far right. Uh, and I genuinely worry about this, and as Justice Minister, I'm concerned about this. There is a relatively small number, we shouldn't overstate it, it is a small number of what I call bad actors who are travelling around the country, who are in some cases involved in criminality and are stoking up fear. And I worry what they're doing is exploiting local residents who can actually have concerns and questions, which is perfectly legitimate. And I worry that that starts to get mixed. And my appeal to people is not to fall for the playbook of the far right. These are people who you've probably never seen in your community before, who pop up, tell you stuff, divide people and, and cause huge, huge difficulty. I am confident though that the Gardaí are monitoring this in a way um, that is absolutely appropriate. I'm also struck by the Garda Commissioner's comments the other day, which I think are important too, that he has to be careful that they don't fall for that trap that the far right sometimes set, where they want the visuals of the Gardaí um, you know, go going in and, and, and breaking up a protest in a way that would only help feed uh, what I believe to be their propaganda. But I am confident, absolutely confident, there's a very clear understanding in a Garda Síochána between the difference between legitimate protest and your right to do that, uh, and, the, and a right that nobody has to And, and on the issue of blockading, blockading roads for a week at a time. I don't believe that's appropriate. Okay, but it wasn't stopped. And I, do, and I do think that needs to be reflected on as we go forward. That's not a criticism, by the way, of operational decisions that were made with, by the Gardaí in good faith, and I trust the Commissioner, I trust their judgment. But we can't have a scenario where this becomes a new norm, whereas we're trying to respond to the biggest humanitarian crisis any of us have lived through, and that people can think that, well, if I can just stand here on the road and stop this. That's not going to work. That's not 
Ireland. It's not how we have dealt with this. The communities across the country, we, you know, I, I worry we've lost this in the last week, this, this remembrance of how much communities have stepped up over the course of the last week. Now we have to do more in relation to communicating with communities, we the government. And, we, and that's, the way, that's the way to engage in this, not feeling you have to stand outside some sort of building with a traffic code and, and block entry. I mean, just think of the effect that this is having on the wellbeing of people who flee persecution But that, as well. that particular strategy that was taken then, it should be reviewed in the case of, of other protests that may take place similar to that one. So always the Gardaí keep all their operations under review and I think as we go into what I think is probably a new phase in terms of having to go around the country again and locate and identify additional accommodation to respond to this humanitarian crisis, I think it is important that we have a very, very clear understanding of where the line stops in relation to protest uh, and where the line starts in relation to unlawful activity and I'm very confident that the Garda Commissioner shares that view. You talked about people seeking asylum being intense and the accommodation um, crisis that is facing people people in this country. Um, is it indicative or is it something that we need to look at um, the asylum process, which is not fit for purpose? So there's been a lot of big changes to the asylum process to be happy to, to, to talk about. But before I say that, we've gone from a situation where around 4,700 people were seeking protection in our country um, in the years before COVID to over 100,000 people over the course of just the last year. No asylum system in the world, in my view, could be prepared overnight for that level of change. However, there are changes being made in relation to the asylum system. So for example, if you come to Ireland now from a country deemed to be of safe origin, you'll get your interview date on the day you arrive, you'll get your interview within two weeks, and you'll get your decision within three months. And we've managed to keep that. That compares to 17 months, Claire, uh, just 18 months ago. So a year and a half ago, it was taking 17 months, it's now taking three months. We're back using deportation orders, and I don't say this to be to crack down on migration, I say this to fill the vacuum that the far right wished for there to exist. So there's a rules-based system here. If you have a right to stay, you get that right quicker. If you don't have a right to stay, you get asked to leave quicker. We have Gardaí now based abroad working with airlines. We've seen 175 fines this year for airlines where people have gotten on without documents. We've seen a very significant reduction in the number so of people Minister, now arriving without documents. Are you happy that the asylum uh, process is fit for purpose? I am happy with the progress that we're making. I genuinely am. We've almost an extra 100 staff in the International Protection Office since December. But we need to continue to staff it. We need to get to over 450 staff by 2024. Um, and we need to continue that work around making sure we live in a country that has rules around migration, which we do, that the rules are enforced fairly and efficiently. Uh, and I do believe we've seen very significant strides in recent months in that area. That was Minister Simon Harris speaking with me a little earlier. Well, Labour Party Senator and Rhys Sherlock, Dublin reporter with PA Grown in the A and News Talk reporter Henry McKean are still here with me just to reflect on a little bit of what the Minister had to say there. Um, on the issue of blockades and, and people protesting in a way that's blockading roads and blockading areas, um, they can't become the new norm, he says. Do you think there's a danger of that happening? Well, I, I think... It's very unfortunate the scenes that we have seen um, in Clare and indeed in 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 other areas in Dublin. Um, like ultimately, people need to go. You know, like isn't these are very vulnerable people in question in terms of of of, of asylum seekers here. They need to be put somewhere. And like I know from my conversations in East Wall and elsewhere, you know, some people have very legitimate concerns, right, with regards to services in the area, people's well-being, their welfare, because this is very basic accommodation. But I think, you know, if the truth be told, um, we have, uh, you know, fear 
inserted into a conversation when really we should be trying to, you know, I, I, I suppose, um, ensure that these people, the, the asylum seekers and, and refugees are made as comfortable as possible and that ultimately that we can find, uh, you know, go through the international protection system and those who are approved then, you know, that, that, that they're properly accommodated. Like ultimately, I think this is about moving the, 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 the discussion on here. And I think the government have done a very poor job at this. Like is it, you know, we've heard the Taoiseach's comments effectively blaming the lack of Gardaí on what happened, the disgraceful scenes in Sandwith Street there uh, the weekend prior, when actually we need to be talking about how, uh, like is in, you know, it's not a threat to communities. Ultimately that, it's a you communication. know. It's communications that need to improve Well, it's an information thing, but also just in terms of a small thing, like in the Labour Party, we've been talking about reducing the length of time that asylum seekers have to wait in this country before they can take yeah. off work, that, that, that they go from six months to three months, because people don't want to think about people lying idle. Nobody wants to be idle well, in a building yeah, all day. We've been talking on that, and on that discussion around the asylum process, because I think that has largely been, you know, the, the, the spotlight now is sort of being put back on that. Well, when we see people in tents and we see this situation that we're talking about, floating accommodation and all these matters of means in which to house people who are who are seeking to know can they can they stay in this country or will they be deported that that process um, seems to be taking a while but the fact of the matter is within direct provision there are currently 5000 people still in direct provision mm. who've got their papers who can work here there's a thousand children still within that setup because there's nowhere now for them to go and live because of this housing crisis. And every time uh, I write up the the latest homeless figures, I have to remind myself in the, and in the copy that it doesn't include rough sleepers. It doesn't include people in direct provision mm -hmm. centres that have gotten their their um, their they've granted asylum mm -hmm. essentially, and it doesn't include people who are turned away or are couch surfing. And that is just the hi a hidden kind of number that we we don't see um, reflected in. in day to day of, of homeless figures. But I think the floating accommodation or floatels or that proposal says a lot about the pressure the government is under to house people. What they feel like is the, the lack of options to consider something like that, something that is a temporary solution. And when we think about direct provision, this government went into, or the, these parties went into government together with that as a priority to get rid of a temporary solution that has become a long-term solution. And now they are considering another what has to be a temporary solution to what is going to be a long-term problem. We heard Dara O'Brien say this week that this isn't going to be the norm. People fleeing conflicts and the implications of climate change to Ireland and we need to resource our, our state to be able to house them properly. So this is not a short-term solution and it ne we need to have a kind of, you know, we heard as well that Ukrainian people will, a certain cohort will want to stay here. So we, this needs to move beyond uh, short-term kind of thinking and long-term planning. And at the heart of that has to be a proper communications strategy as well. Communications, Henry. I mean, I, I don't agree with you on communications. I mean, these people, a lot of these uh, protesters, they're very, very organised. Uh, and we heard the minister there talk about far right. And it is, it's some of these far right people, the same people who are anti-lockdown, anti-mask, let's call a spade a spade. And I was over at Eurovision, I was over in Liverpool, enjoying Eurovision, and I could see the news coming in from Ireland, uh, from County Clare, and there was a roadblock. And I just thought, what has happened to this country? Where have, what, what's happened to us? Why, why have we become And, and you so think in that instance, mean, Henry, though there was a lot of people. talk that 
say yeah. the operator of, mm. of the hotel in question knew about this and that there was, you yeah. know, people did have knowledge of it, but people in their locality say, you know, we didn't know, we shocked. heard about they this. Were shocked and they we were surprised. Shocked. But, but, you know, it's illegal to um, close down a road. No one should be doing that. And there's different ways to protest. And eventually they let, you know, food in, they let pizza in. And I just thought, how dare you? I will, How I will say dare the, you the group involved in the blockade food. was a just small thought, enough group. I just group. thought that was so outrageous. Yeah, I mean, were... this country, and, and, and I know my, my you know, my, I, I moved here 33 years ago. My grandmother uh, is originally from Cork, and she had to emigrate. And so many families had to emigrate out of here. And where is the love? Where is the, where, where, where is it? I mean, it's, it's, and then to hide behind communication. I think that Thánaiste said this week that when you think about the scale of the amount of people Ireland has taken in over the past 12 to 14 months, it's 100,000 people between Ukrainian refugees and international protection uh, applicants. And when you, when you pinpoint all the protests we've had and the number of people opposing it, it actually has been quite a quiet assimilation and a quiet acceptance of people into communities. And that is a valid point, I think. I think the... The communications part is that the government should not be shy about what its policy is in relation okay. to asylum and, and to communicate that to people. All right, we will have to leave that there. My thanks uh, to my panel. Coming up after the break, a first look at Virgin Media One's uh, new documentary, The Monk, A Free Man. Do stay with us. Virgin Media Television will air a brand new documentary this Sunday, The Monk, A Free Man, dubbed The Trial of the Century, which led to the acquittal of Jared the Monk Hutch, who was accused of the 2016 murder of David Byrne. Well, it spans the genesis of the hutch Kinnan feud, the Regency Hotel shooting, the trial of Hutch and testimony of Jonathan Dowdall. And this documentary takes a look at one of the biggest crime stories in the history of the state. Let's take a look at a clip from the doc now. We were at the front entrance as that tactical team, as they were called, were making their way in. They were shouting at us, get the F out of here, get the F down, and quite aggressively shouting at the people running out. And, you know, there was kids among that crowd coming out in the first instance. I could hear them shouting, he's not effing in there, he's not effing in there, I can't effing find him, go, go, go. Tactical 2 approached him coldly and calmly and then fired a number of shots in his head and body. He was shot six times. He died almost instantly. He didn't survive the attack. Daniel Kenhan made good his escape. So several months before that trial was due to start, Jonathan Dowdall was given bail by the Special Criminal Court. And for a person charged with a gangland murder to be given bail, it's nearly unheard of. Something was amiss here. Dowdall would be testifying against a former family friend and, and someone that he had spent um, many months incarcerated with while awaiting trial, George the Monk Hutch. And our courts correspondent, Deborah Naylor, joins me now. Deborah, we heard um, a clip from you um, in this documentary and really what is, as I say, one of the biggest trials that we've ever had in the state, one of the biggest crime trials. And so much drama surrounded all of this from the get-go. It did. I think this was one of the, you know, the most closely anticipated trials we've certainly seen in recent years. And really the drama before began before this trial ever even did, you know, if, if before it got underway. And after the shocking events at the Regency Hotel in 2016, well, it was 2021, 
when Jared Hutch, he was extradited from Spain. It was exactly a year later when his former co-accused Jonathan Dowdall uh, turned against him. Turned state witness will be in implicating him in the case. Two weeks after that, the trial began. We then had months of an incredibly dramatic trial ending in an extraordinary acquittal. And I suppose this programme looks at what happened at the Regency, hearing from people who were there on the day. It takes you inside the courtroom for the duration of the trial and, and the fallout since what's happened after. Yeah, a sensational acquittal, as you say, um, the Gardaí putting so much stake, I suppose, on, on Jonathan Dardall's evidence in this case. At the end of the day, the judges of the Supreme Court said, you know, it was not to be relied upon. Um, the repercussions of, of the decision um, of the Special Criminal Court here, how has this played out? What's been the fallout following the acquittal of Jerry Hutch? Well, I think it's interesting if you look back at 2016 when the Regency happened, um, it dominated the political agenda during the general election at the time. And such was the extraordinary nature of this acquittal. Um, this has dominated the political agenda for a time. And there's been, you know, so much talk about this case um, from many different aspects. And as the court said, one would have to ask what was the case against Jared Hutch uh, before Jonathan Dowdall entered the frame, because you have to remember Jared Hutch was charged with murder before Jonathan Dowdall decided to become state's witness. Um, but after this acquittal, Drew Harris said that he would be meeting uh, with the DPP, he said that last month, to discuss certain matters. And that meeting, which may have already taken place in private, will, will certainly reflect on uh, certain aspects of this trial and certain matters and perhaps... Uh, why, for instance, Jared Hutch did not face um, other charges other than the murder charge. The Garda Commissioner also warning the Hutch Organised Crime Group that it's still under investigation and members of that group could still face prosecution. And in a bizarre twist, GSOC has been pulled into all of this. After the acquittal of Jerry Hutch, there was a party um, held for him in which a GSOC officer was in attendance. Um, what's the state of that investigation, that ongoing investigation into the officer's attendance at that party? Well, this, of course, was another extraordinary development um, coming uh, the, you know, days after Jared Hutch walked free uh, from the Special Criminal Court. And the inquiry into that officer, uh, now retired, who allegedly attended uh, that party after Jared Hutch was acquitted, well, uh, we understand that that's still underway. Um, that officer, who's now retired, was arrested. He was released without charge um, last month. But we understand uh, it's been reported this week that uh, his colleagues in GSOC have been um, questioned as part of that probe. So we may well uh, get some development in relation to that matter in the coming weeks or months. As uh, to the whereabouts of Jerry uh, Hutch now, he has left Ireland. He's understood to be back in Spain. Is he, Deborah? Yeah, he was in Dublin uh, for a number of weeks, uh, quite longer, I think, than, than some people expected he would. He was certainly here for around two or three weeks. We understand he's now gone back to uh, Lanzarote, uh, where he has a property. But in a manner of weeks, um, if not him, his legal team will be returning to the Special Criminal Court and that is in a bid uh, to recoup his legal costs from the 52-day trial. Uh, the state will be opposing this application, but that becomes uh, that comes before the Special Criminal Court on June 7th next. And Jared Hutch will be certainly hoping uh, to get another legal battle or another legal win under his belt. And that's a decision that's likely to generate more headlines, isn't it? Because the costs for this case that ultimately um, found uh, the, uh, Jerry Hutch to be acquitted on will be quite sizable. 
Yeah, there's been different figures certainly uh, thrown around. I think, you know, it's fair to say it will certainly be a six-figure sum. We don't know exactly, but it was, you know, 52 days of evidence. I think 13 weeks, um, you know, he, he had a senior counsel in court and he had a number of junior barristers as well. Um, we don't know yet what exactly will be the state's basis for opposing this application, but we know they're going to. So the details of that will be played out in, in the Special Criminal Court in a matter of weeks. And as to the murder of David Byrne and that Regency Hotel um, shooting, Gardaí say it's still very much a live investigation. Um, do we know what's happening in the background now? We don't know exactly. Um, there could be further charges, certainly, down the line. I mean, the Special Criminal Court... Um, you know, they, they did make some findings. They found that, you know, it, it was highly possible that the Hutch Organised Crime Group uh, orchestrated this attack. Uh, you know, I don't think it's out of the realms of possibility to, to expect further charges in relation to this down the line. OK, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us about that, Deborah. That uh, documentary airs on Virgin Media One on Sunday. That's The Monk, A Free Man. Um, but from all the late team here, good night and do take care. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.